Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. What are you extracting audio Just, from? Unfortunately, people do not see your pretty face. They only okay. hear. And, and can your, you hear me okay? You sound, you sound great. Okay, good. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from New Hell's Kitchen. Is that right? Hell's Kitchen. Yes. Is that is that a real town or is that just a? It is a real neighborhood. Okay. A neighborhood. Independently, independently existing mm-hmm. from a famous famous television show featuring Hell's Kitchen Daredevil, which was not filmed in Hell's Kitchen. It's not. So this is John Tyson, who is not Daredevil from the Marvel universe. Is it? Yes. Marvel? Yeah. Sure. That's not it's you. Marvel. You are. You're an author, you're a pastor, but you're not a, a, an action hero. If you had to be a hero in the Marvel Comics universe, which one do you think would fit your personality the best? Oh my gosh. I've, I've known you for seven minutes. I was, okay. I'm thinking... I, I, I mean, who do you think? I don't know. The I was incredible. thinking I don't know. The Punisher. That's who I thought of. I don't know who The <laughs> Punisher is. My cartoon knowledge is embarrassingly horrible. Your Netflix knowledge is horrible. Like, it's, it was a Netflix show that... Okay, I mean, p- point being made as we speak. Okay, yeah, yeah. pipe it in as you... Okay, uh, John Tyson, you're on the podcast. I'm, I'm excited to meet you. You, as people know, they're listening to your accent, they're like, clearly this yes. person is from New York. Um, yes. But that's not true. You're actually from Australia. And you're a Christian, right? Is it fair to say that? That is a fair... I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay. So you're Australian, you're a Christian, but you're not somehow related to Hillsong, are you? I am not officially related to Hillsong. How um, is that possible? How did, you, how did you fall through the cracks? Well, I, I think I was, you know, I, I was in America. I was in New York. So I've been in uh, New York City for 13 years uh, before Hillsong came. So, it is kind of funny now that people say, oh, you're an Australian pastor, you must be from Hillsong. And I'm like, I'm, I love Hillsong. I think Carl Lentz is a very, very gifted communicator, and obviously their worship is once in a generation good. Mm-hmm. But believe it or not, Australia does not, not consist of pastors from Hillsong. There's a whole, whole nation of us. So There's more of you. There is more. You want to hear a story? I was in the Atlanta airport, which have you been to the Atlanta airport? You just cut out. I guess you haven't been to the Atlanta airport. Uh-oh. You don't like the story. He didn't like the story. So, Are you back? Hello? Yes, I'm back. Sorry about that. Okay. I, just, I don't know what happened. A plane flew over. I Daredevil jumped on the roof. That's yes. what it was. That's what. Okay. Uh, the Atlanta airport. Have you been to it? Yeah. I, uh, hundreds of times. Have you been to the P.F. Chang's in the Atlanta airport? Uh, I don't eat P.F. Chang's. No. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know, for a Texan, that's as yeah. uh, international as my cuisine gets. Okay, so gotcha. I'm in the P.F. Chang's, and this couple walks in, and they have an Australian accent. And so I text my uh, good friend, Paul Nevison, who's from, uh, he's actually from New Zealand, but he, he was living in Sydney. He's a Hillsong guy. And he go, hey, this couple right here, I bet uh, they're Hillsong because they have an Australian accent. And do you want to know who it was? It um Lo and behold, it's Brooke. Uh, what is her? She Brooke Fraser. It was Brooke Fraser. Yes, and her Stop husband. It. Stop it! <laughs> it, de- it definitely was. And so my, I had my uh, middle daughter with me, Adeline, and she like I, I started conversation. Hey, and this is my friend Paul. Blah blah blah. And so I tell my daughter, this is the girl who sings. Uh, what is the song? Jesus, your name, whatever her the song is. What a beautiful name it is. Exactly. And yes. so my daughter now says that she helped her write that song. She told her sisters, yeah, I met this girl, Brooke, and we wrote a song. You've probably heard it already. So That's so funny. I, I bet the people at Hillsong get sick of being asked if they're from Hillsong. 
Are you from Hillsong? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry yeah. about that. Okay, one of the reasons, though, I, I knew about your book is because Joel Houston retweeted something that you posted about your book. The only tweet you've posted about your book. Yes. Which, as like someone who's kind of game planning what I'm going to do when my book comes out, I'm definitely not going to follow your game plan. I feel like I don't want to do this. You said you're only going to do one tweet about your book. Well, I, I'm not sure I said that exactly. It was something like I, that. Yeah, it was something like that. You know, it's it's so hard. I am not, you know, my, my marketing strategy is is very Australian, which is basically do the best you can, put it into the world, and if God believes that you have the character that will bear influence, He will bless the work. Okay. So, and then and then you know, every now and then, someone who works for the book company gets me on a podcast like this, which just boggles my mind. So th- thank you so much for having me on. Maybe God trusts my character enough yeah. to get me on to your podcast. So that's yeah. how much character I have. I think you've got a lot. I've also read a, a few books by people who have terrible character and they've done really well. So I don't know how to process that, but I really like where you're coming from. But- okay, so you tell us, so the book is called The Burden is Light, Liberating Your Life from the Tyranny of Performance and Success. Yeah. So having a very aggressive success-oriented, performance-based strategy for a book that's about breaking that is, I mean, you yeah, see the, yeah, the situation I find myself in. Yeah, you're, you're kind of in a, in a tough one. Luckily, my book isn't about character, so I'm good to go. But you know what, John? I'm going to help you out. We're going to, yes. su- you're only going to put one tweet out, but this is what I'm going to do. This is for my listeners. For my listeners who put out a tweet about John Tyson and perf- liberating yourself from the tyranny of performance and success, you do a tweet about this, and I'm going to give away five copies of this book to the best five tweets about you or your book or anything funny about you, maybe whatever Marvel hero you think John Tyson would be, and you you tag his book title in it, I'm going to give away five copies. So I'm helping you out. I'm gonna, you're going to be blessed for your humility right now. Well, well, I appreciate that. I mean, that, that, that is the biblical strategy. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's mighty. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he'll exalt you in due time if your character deems worthy. That's my, that's my take. And, and you, congratulations on that. Let me tell you something else that you are exalted by. You went on a trip to meet the Pope. I read it in the book, so it has to be true. Is that true? True story? Yes, it is a beautiful were, true story. Were you on the trip with uh, Joshua Ryan Butler? Yes, I was. Okay. So that's really cool that you guys got invited because you're young evangelical pastors. I mean, it's cool that some of us are also, you know, young evangelical pastors and we didn't get invited. But anyway, uh, so for those of you who are so exalted to go, what was it like? Well, you know what? It was, it was kind of extraordinary. Uh-huh. As, as you can imagine, um, it's, it's, it, meeting the Pope, what was so surprising about meeting the Pope is that, you know, he tweets and says things that are very, very Jesus-like. Mm-hmm. And he acts in a way that embraces the controversy of Jesus, you know, washing feet and his mm-hmm. posture and his attitude towards outsiders, that sort of thing. But then to be with him in person for two hours wow. and to hear him drop that stuff live, it was it just felt like an out-of-body experience. Really? You know, so one, one of these, his opening comments, and I'm sure that you can read this some on the internet, but because they record everything he says. One of his opening comments was sort of like, the church without prophets is dead. It's a dead church. So we need prophets speaking into the life of the church. And that was one of his opening comments about the need to be hearing the living voice of God and the church to receive sort of correction about Jesus' heart. And 
I mean, it's just That's... kind of unbelievable. The, the, probably the coolest thing, the night before or the day before, they were like, you can't bring any uh, phones in there. You, you know, you can only get the, the official Vatican photos. And then the Pope sends a message through his assistant that's kind of like, what are you talking about? These are all young people. Let them bring the phones in and do the selfie. So, yeah, I have an amazing selfie where I'm hugging the Pope oh. and he's handing me a copy of um, one of his encyclicals or whatever. Wow. And, uh, and he was just so patient. I mean, you've got to imagine being his age in a room of people who just incessantly want things from you and just having a beautiful spirit. It was really incredible. Wow. Have you ever met anyone who was like the Pope? Yeah, you know, what's so funny when it comes to church hierarchy, I've actually met hundreds of people like the Pope. Like personality-wise, I mean, not just status. But- yes, I, I, I've just met so many people with godly, Christ-like, Jesus-oriented character, but they're school teachers, they're stay-at-home moms, they, they work regular jobs. And so, you know, the people of Jesus are, are hidden in every conceivable place in the world. They just, you know, they just don't have that position. But hmm. Anyway, I, I know a lot of people who are, are, are Pope-like, but without the title. But it is so beautiful and refreshing to have uh, a Pope who so bodily embodies the character of Jesus. Well, speaking of the antithesis of the character of Jesus, how many times did you mention that you were going to see the Pope before it happened? Like, hey, I'm, I can't be there next week. I'm going to be with the Pope. If you need me, just send me an email. Like, did you drop that at all? Well, what you know, there's a funny backstory to this and... Um, so we were actually meant to have a private meeting with the Pope at our church. Like somebody had to reached out and uh, he wanted to have a private meeting with evangelical leaders. And our church was chosen to host that meeting in wow. New York. And that meeting fell through for a bunch of reasons. And then he said, Hey, will you come uh, visit me at the Vatican? So we weren't allowed to tell anybody about that meeting. So I, you know, I'm not just by, I, I'm just not, a name dropper mm-hmm. and I, I mean how who am i to, to go visit the pope what's awesome about visiting the pope is not me yep. it's the fact that someone that busy cares about bringing in younger evangelical leaders or whatever so mm. you know it, it was the, the spirit that i shared from was kind of like hey what's an idiot like me yep. doing in a room with a person like this can you believe it was sort of like childlike joy rather than and disbelief and wonder rather than look how awesome I am to meet the Pope or whatever. Yeah, I just would think it's such a cool thing. And obviously, I'm Church of Christ. Like, I didn't grow up, like, listening to anything any Pope has ever said. But just... Me me either, yes. But it's just the idea of, like, this person has such a influence on so many people and has helped and been life-giving for so many people. Yeah, it was was a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I am profoundly grateful for it. Mm -hmm. No one else is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Me getting to have you on the podcast talking about your new book, The Burn is Light. Well, wonderful. <laughs> That's what we call a transition in the business. <clears throat> yes, thank you. Okay, by the way, so you're a your pastor. And I am a pastor, you explained yes. to me the TGC, it, like history, which is very exciting to me. But you pastor yes. two churches in the Hell's... Is, are they both in the same sort of... I don't understand the no, boroughs just, and neighborhoods and all like that's. I'm, okay, yes, I just I just passed a one church that has a morning service and an evening service in a different location. So okay. the morning service is in a neighborhood uh, in Manhattan called the Upper East Side, okay. which is um, uptown next to Central Park on the east side, yeah. and then right in the middle, just off Times Square on Forty Six between Broadway and Sixth Avenue. Actually, at the high school, ironically, 
where the 80s movie Fame was filmed. I'm meeting the Fame High School mm. with my church. Of course, So yeah. that's Jack, Jackie Kennedy and NASA's church. That's on 46th Street. Who could have missed that one? Uh, um, yeah. Does your church have buildings there? Like two different buildings? Because that's... No, we, we meet in uh, public schools, that's th- as do most churches. I mean, almost yeah, uh, uh, almost all uh, non-denominational, and, and vac- actually the vast majority of non-denominational uh, church plants don't have building assets. Yeah. I, so, I, almost everybody rents. I couldn't imagine how much that property would cost. I, I know it's ridiculous. Actually, I was, I was in New York a couple months ago, and uh, uh, Jim Martin, James, Father James Martin, who his office is huh? right around, similar location to the... Uh, or is he? He's right next to uh, Rockefeller Center, I think. But he was telling me their old building got sold and all, and like just the, the numbers for the just blew my mind. Anyway, all that to say, yes. your pastor, your Monday. How, yeah. how do you feel on Mondays after you preach your two services? Well, honestly, I love to preach, man. I mean, it's it's one of the few things that I do, you know. Okay, so I I love it. I wake up and um, I'm like. I mean, I, I make Mondays basically a leadership day, so I'm, I'm also working on other stuff I love. But uh, yesterday I woke up, and oh, uh, sorry, only preaching three times, so on, on Easter we did more services. And I was like, oh, gosh, I feel like I just took a vacation. Easter weekend, that was real. Was it real? How many did you do but on Easter weekend? We, well, we just did four, four Sunday, but then we did two Good Friday. Oh, yeah. So, you know, in the week leading up to it, there's obviously a bunch of stuff, so... Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that, that'll get you. Okay, so Monday, I, I, I've gotten in the habit of like scheduling these podcasts on Monday, which it, it's really good for my like work schedule, but like Mondays usually I'm yeah. kind of like slumping. But you know what, today, like it's going to be good because the burden, you know what it is? It's not heavy, it's... That burden is light, mate. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's jump into the book. Okay. So you wanted to help close the gap between our actual self and the self that God desires for us. As someone who's been a pastor for how many years now? I've been a pastor for, gosh, 21 years or something. Okay, so tell me from your two decades of pastoral experience, what creates that gap between who I am and who God desires for me to be? Well, it's it's multifaceted. If it was that easy and I could give it to you in one word, there'd be no need to write a book and we'd all look and live like Jesus. Yeah, you just do a tweet. It'd just be a tweet then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's true. Um, other people try and solve the world uh, through Twitter, but not myself. Um, it's it's a process of things. So part of it is our cultural formation. Like the world is really uh, in many powerful ways shaping and discipling us. So there's, there's some sort of formation that comes from the world. Um, there's expectations uh, from authority figures that have put into our mind and hearts that we receive our value by living in you know, certain standards, certain ways. And then we have expectations of ourselves. And, you know, all of these things sort of coming together can often put us in a place where who we want to be lags behind the biblical possibility of who we could be. Yeah. And so I wanted to write a, a, a life-giving, not um, burden-inducing book that sort of like came up with some of, ways, some of the ways to close that. And most of the big sins Christians get out of their lives you know, it's just like, you know, you become a Christian, you're like, you know what, probably probably shouldn't be having sex. You know what, I probably shouldn't be stealing. Like some of those larger categories sort of disappear, but those issues of the heart, those subterranean forces that, that form and shape us that we sometimes can't name, identify, and therefore respond to, that can hang around and really influence us. So I was trying to write to some of those deeper themes that I often saw, you know, sort of neglected or addressed at a surface level. I, I try to at least... Yeah. 
get with us. And, and the stuff that you picked out of competition and comparison, especially, I, I think those are spot on. Do you think like those, you, you differentiate between, um, I, I'm trying to get you to help talk about the difference between America and Australia in terms of like these big issues. Yes. And, and I love your thing you did in, in competition about the language Americans use when things are going well compared to the Aussie language. Like in it's, it's so true. It's, it's it was brilliant. In Australia, you say, "Well, oh, I'm well taken care of. They did get well for themselves." In America, we're like, "I'm ripping out the souls of my competition." Like it's so over the top. Like if you literally just think, there about is it. so much. There is so much violence in American language connected to to victory. Yeah. And so you know, um, Gary V, who's an interesting character, who I, I you know I respect his hustle. His whole thing, I'm just like, just crush it, crushing it. I am crushing it. And whenever you talk about somebody, say, hey, how are they doing? Dude, they are killing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, they are annihilating it. Like the levels of hyperbolic intensity. And in America, they're like, oh, how's he doing? He's like, yeah, he's doing quite well, thanks. Yeah, you know, well. I mean, it's so understated. But there is a, there's a truth reflected in mm-hmm. that of the American spirit to overcome and to obtain victory and to pioneer and come out on top. Mm-hmm. And um, the problem with crushing it is that there's people who get crushed. And when you're the victor, there's people who were destroyed. And that may be fine in, you know, late modern capitalism, but it certainly is not the way the church is designed to operate. So when that spirit makes its way into the heart of a Christian and they start treating other believers like this, it, that is bad for Jesus' people. Yeah. When you look at the difference of your time in the States compared to Australia, besides the language that we use with competition and maybe the obsession with um, the way that we worship the goddess of Nike, which is the god of victory uh, in America. What are other ones that you think are more elevated in the States compared to um, back home down under? Well, yeah, well, I mean, that, that is embodied with the way that uh, America treats its heroes. America turns its heroes into icons and gods, and Australians humanize and cut down their heroes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 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 the way that um, Americans treat their celebrities is a little bit different. I, w- I will say this, though. Uh, so I've lived half of my life in Australia, half of my life in the United States, and the most formative parts of my life in New York City. The world has flattened. And so much of the same media, uh, a lot of the same shows, a lot of the same cultural expectations, certainly the generational shift from millennials and then to whatever this generation is called now, that has flattened the world. So a lot of those cultural differences um, are, are differing. And then the fact that if you're, if you're in Sydney, and you're in New York, and you live near this, you know, in, in the city itself, you've probably got more in common than somebody in, I've probably got more in common with someone in another city than I do with somebody in a rural part of the United States. So even that urbanization thing sort of kicks in gotcha. a little bit. So I wish I could elaborate with hundreds of more no, cultural differences, but, but it is kind of flattening a yeah, little I bit. Yeah, I could see that. I, but as I was reading, like, your book and the stuff that you were pointing to, I thought there were things that are, like, really prevalent. And honestly, I was doing a series about... Uh, like the monsters that we have and some of the stuff that you wrote about I was like oh this is perfect because i'm doing a series on this which means i will be copying and pasting some of your book and i will even give you credit once maybe you don't have to give me credit i i have a tendency to write books that the typical person doesn't buy but pastors love to gut for illustrations and quotes wow. so you know you've got to have an audience and if that's working more power well, to you, man. Get ready. I'm gutting this thing because uh, we're going in. On, let's talk about comparison, which I will definitely be ripping off some stuff that you do. Yes. Um, uh, you have a quote from Elaine de. Bo- okay, go ahead and tell me how to pronounce this person's. Elaine de Baton. Elaine yes. de Baton. Uh, who is that? Yes. Um, he, he is an. Ing- he's a he. Yes. Elaine. 
he's he's written a couple of books uh he's an atheist uh british atheist uh he wrote a book called status anxiety okay. and um he's done the the school of life in the uk which is basically a very very thoughtful attempt to maintain virtue and vision connected to christian faith but without religion gotcha so but his book status anxiety is probably the best least read book on this issue, and you will just be underlining the entire mm. thing. And you, it's what won't you quote from this? So book? basically, do you just take his books and add Bible verses to it to get you your sermon material? Well, I mean, there was a lot of quotes in that chapter from you, boy, right? There. Okay, well, now I know how to say his name, figure out his gender as well, which yes. helps. So that when I quote yeah. this quote that you have in your book, I'll at least sound like I've yes. read it. But you talk, uh, but he yes. talks about the attention of others matters to us because we're afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value. When we get stuck into comparisons, because I don't know who I am, is that right? Yes. Okay. And then you say living... Well, that language, a congenital. Yeah. It's like a birth defect in our soul. Yeah. Oh, that is such strong It is. And you say comparison creates a fragile soul. Right? Yeah, because if you, yeah, whoever you get, if you're only, your implicit value is based on your performance as opposed to others, mm-hmm. um, it, it, what, a, what a difficult place to be in. You're only as good as your current performance. Oh. And none of, none of us win all the time. You know, so we have moments of weakness, brokenness, despair, hopelessness. And, and when others surge ahead, you know, who are we? We're losers. Yeah. We're the ones getting left behind. We're outsiders, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's, that is fragile. That's no good. In your time as a pastor, two decades, how do you see comparison bubbling up? In what ways do you see people like giving into this temptation to like find their value compared to other people? Well, I mean, it's a cliche to say, but it's a functional reality that still still deserves a, a lot of attention. Just the, the rise of social media. I mean, I, I grew up before the internet was really a thing, before there was any sort of smartphones, and. You know, my, my comparison was basically with whoever was in my high school. Mm-hmm. So that's a very small pool of comparison. Now my pool of comparison is um, the human race because I have access to absolutely everybody else in the world. And so, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, Facebook's obviously, you know, a touch controversial right now, but I remember very, very clearly when I, when I got onto Facebook and I had that euphoric moment of, oh my goodness. Where are all of my friends from my teenage years? Some of those lives made you go, dear God, thank you for who I am and the life I'm living. And then other people, you were like, oh, my gosh, I suck. What a failure. Look how far they've come. So social media obviously Mm -hmm. facilitates this sort of comparison, and it's very, very hard. It, It unleashes something in your soul once that bug gets in there that is very, very hard to turn off. And my, a part of my point is like when Christian leaders are driven by this, all we're doing is imitating each other's gifts in other contexts rather than being ourselves. And that, that, that leads to massive pastoral hmm. burnout. So we, we have to learn to live from our call. Otherwise, it's just going to crush how, how us. How does living from the, the call give a solution to comparison? Well, when you know what you're meant to be doing, like you, you, the audience shifts. So, you know, like you, 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 when you get a clear sense that God himself, he's the one that will reward me. He's the one that's asked me to do it. And it says in this, that passage of 1 Corinthians 4, when we stand before God, the motives of our heart will be exposed and each of us will receive our praise from God. 
And so when you realize that your motives, not just your outcomes, are going to be interrogated, and that God will actually praise and reward you, the, the focus shift from, from a, um, a comparison with others around us to a vertical vision, and it just sort of pulls you above the fray. And, you know, I, I found there's nothing that, nothing that is able to break that freedom then spending time really hearing from the Father, what am I going to be accountable for in my life? What do you yeah. have for me? And that's sort of like it, is, it It orients your call upwards, which is what Paul talked about, the upward yeah. call, and it frees you from having to look at who's yeah. around you. That's good. That's good. Uh, one of the things that uh, you touch on is the issue of control, and control over surrender. And you end yeah. up going uh, to to learn about how to be a trap. Pe- it's It's... Trapeze school, yes. What is, what is a trapezer a called? Someone who does the... Tra- What's the word for the... A flyer? I don't I, know. I need a better word than that. A, a trapezius a sounds good. Okay, so let's, tell me the story. Yeah, who's dedicated their life to trapeziism. trapeziism yeah, so your weekend uh, foray into trapeziism. You use this as an illustration. One of your parishioners says, you yes. don't have it all figured out. Come, I'm a trapeziist. Let me teach you the way. You show up there. What are you thinking? Well, number one, before I show up there, I'm like, oh, dear God, why did I sign up for this? That's what I'm okay. actually thinking. So, so basically, you know, I mean, um, John Ortberg, you know, tells this story in one of his books about how, you know, like um, the, the key to surrender is staying still and being caught, you know. And so, I'm, you know, it's talking about Brennan Manning and just, you know, his struggle and so it's a great analogy, man. I'm a preacher. I'm like you. I read someone else's book. I get an idea. Copy boom, I'm using paste. that. Yeah. So I'm using that, and I'm trying to tell the story really well, and I think I've nailed it. The whole room's resonating. I'm in the New York Times building in the Times Theater sharing this beautiful yeah, analogy. Killing it. And, and then a cu- crushing, destroying it. <laughs> then a couple comes up to me, and they're like, we really liked your analogy, but you left out the key part. I was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, thanks. Thanks. That. They're like, we actually are taking um, trapeze lessons, and we'd love to give you a free lesson so that we can show you the part. And it's, it's after church, man. I'm busy. People are coming up to me, and I'm like, yeah, sure thing. This sounds great. So uh, we'll, we'll set up a time without really thinking about it. And then I, I kind of forgot that trapezists fly through the yeah. air at the top of a gigantic yeah. tent and drop out of the sky into a gigantic net. Not a fan of heights myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a small man okay. either, and upon arriving at the, uh, the Brooklyn School of Trapezianism, <laughs> I realized that all the guys that are doing this are basically five foot one, and I'm not no. five foot one. Anyway, so I, I get there, and uh, I, I, I climb up this thing, and I do it wrong. So they say, swing out and surrender, and I basically do a chin-up the entire time. <laughs> For dear life, I couldn't move for like two weeks afterwards. And then when my strength gives out, I just drop out of the air like a cannonball. And then they basically said, you know, in the analogy, they basically talk about how a person, there's a person who catches, and then there's the person who gets caught. And that you basically have to stay still in the air so that the person who, you know, so that you're a very stable uh, object for the catcher to get. And the point of the analogy is, You've got to stop struggling and just surrender and someone will catch you. God will catch you. But what they said, and so that was the analogy, but what they said was there's actually a person on the ground when you're learning to do this. And he basically is the one that can see the entire picture. So he sees where the catcher is. He sees where you are. And he tells you when to let go. 
So without his knowledge of the entire movement, you're just, you're just hanging on for dear life. And so you have to learn to listen to the guy on the floor, and he's the one that, that can tell you now it's time to surrender. And their analogy was basically, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's who God is. He sees the whole of your life. And so unless you have confidence that he sees and you're listening to his voice, surrender is basically suicide if you just mm-hmm. do it on your own. So you've got to learn to tune your ear to the voice of the person on the ground who can see everything. And that was that was the analogy. And so when I realized by practical experience and brute force and burning forearms, I can't do this. Listening to that guy on the ground became the most important thing in my life. And so I was just like totally locked on to his advice. So that was the the analogy, you've got to learn to listen to the voice. For yeah, the to wisdom surrender. of the trapeziums. And it's right. Listen for that. Yes. Huh, huh. What, what is the sound they make? Yeah, they hep. say hep because apparently go or whatever other word now, um, a lot of people had very bad experiences confusing the tone. So hep was hep. a unique okay. sound. Okay. So they, they, and, and so the metaphor is that, you know, that's the spirit of God telling you to let go. God's the one who catches you. Yeah, he or, no, he sees when it's time to to let go, so you can trust that he will catch you because yeah. he sees. Okay, and so then you you let go, and so religion is about relinquishing your control over you know God's in control and all that. Uh, you start that chapter off by saying that people think religion is about controlling people, like religion is used to to control us, but really religion has been perverted into us trying to control God. How has it gotten backwards? If it's really about us letting go and trusting God, how come religion today often looks like us trying to control who God is and what God's supposed to do? Well, we, we you know, I mean, th- this is the ancient primal force of religion. It's like you, you try and raw religion, sort of animism back in the day was like you try to appease mm-hmm. the elements. And so you offer sacrifice to try and get it to rain. You, you, you're offering blood and bulls uh, so that, you know, things will grow out of the ground. You're trying to like get mastery or, or a, a deal with the raw yeah. elements. And many people do that with God. So they basically try and create a deal with the divine um, that if I do this, therefore you must do this to create a sense of obligation through obedience to God. And God doesn't quite work like that. No. My favorite line about control, and I've, I've said it probably a billion times, so much so that I probably think this quote is actually mine. But Barbara Brown Taylor is the one who originally yes. said it. It's that we never lose yes. control. It's that we lose the illusion of control. Like control is never something we have. It's just the illusion that we ever were in control. And let. Yes. Why didn't you? I wish you'd eat me that. I could have put that in my book. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't reach out to me before. I, I didn't tweet that. Tweet that. Tweet Sorry, that. man. I should have. I will next time. I'll work okay, on another, another book. Put it. Right now. Put it in I'll there. And you out. know what? If you if they tweet, yes. hey, John Tyson is the one who said uh, control is not lose. It, you can give me a copy. Seriously, five five books yes. given away for this book. I'm not even joking around. Like five of them given away. Best tweets. So John Tyson doesn't have to tweet about himself. Anyway, back to the subject at hand. Um, so yes. control is trusting this thing. You've got this line from St. Ignatius who said, I don't know if he tweeted this, but he should have, that sin is an <laughs> unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Like that's really like letting go and trusting that God wants What's best for you? How, how come that is so hard for us? Why do we choose sin instead of trusting that God wants what's best for us? Well, I mean, to define what, what is our deepest happiness. You know, we're so used to immediate gratification that I don't think we can sort of pass out our deepest happiness. And um, it, can, it can be terrifying. I mean, so, there's so much bad theology in the world. And it, it basically produces temporary material happiness. We think that's God's mm-hmm. end goal. But he is, he is fundamentally committed to making us into the image of our son, 
providing us with eternal joy and glory, and then using whatever experiences through the crucible of life will most shape us into the image of his son. And so we need to get our sense of happiness, you know, not from our circumstances or or typical blessings, but through the process of formation. And God is using Mm -hmm. everything to form us. So we often short circuit our spiritual formation in an effort to flee from difficult circumstances when that's actually the place where most of them are. Well, that's, that's God's school of formation for us. Sin, sin just promises you know, immediate fulfillment and mm-hmm. fixing, and but then afterwards you're like, "What a yeah, beat down!" It's not good. Know? Yeah. Just for the record, if you didn't get the whole podcast, the point is, sin is not good. Sin is bad. We're going to say yes, that. Thank you. That's good. Very clear. Sin is disappointing. Yeah. My uh, well. my youngest daughter likes to. She's four. She just turned four, and she likes to do a thumbs down. She goes yeah. thumbs down, bad choice. That's what we're. Thumbs down, bad choice. Thumbs down, bad choice. That's not, I don't know if it's as good as St. Ignatius' line about sin, but it's pretty close, I think. My my kids are a little older, so my son's about to turn 18 and leave our house. So I use things like, sin will destroy Yeah, it's a little stronger. So, you know, it's a little little, little phrase. How old are your kids? 18? Yeah, my son's about to turn 18 and uh, take a gap year, and my daughter's 15. So I am deep into the valley of the teenage years. Ooh, wow. Okay, that's we'll we'll do another podcast when I have teenage daughters. That's, <laughs> that's a lot. You'll you'll need to write a few books between now and then to help me get through yeah. that. Um. Anyway, um, I don't want to speak negativity in the world because I want to talk about cursing and blessing. Okay. I have I never uh, I never thought about it, and I think it's a an Orper quote that blessing and cursing are two ways of treating people. It's not just like the words that you say, but it's like a disposition, what is the word? A disposition. disposition. There you are. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. Cursing and blessing. When you, yes. did you use this subject matter for a sermon series by any chance? I'm assuming you've probably said it in a sermon at some point, right? Um, this was not a sermon series. This was a sermon. Yes. And, and honestly, this is, how, yeah, this was how, one sermon. How long are your sermons, man? This well, I mean, people. I mean, you want to give out little little happy snacks, or do you want to feed the people? <laughs> this is, this I'm a 50 minute preacher. <laughs> it's an entire book that comes from. Okay, true story. No. This past weekend, I gave that blessing and curse, that blessing and curse sermon in 31 minutes. Uh, yeah, but you said originally that was just one one sermon. Bless blessing and curse of the book. The book. The b- oh no, no sorry, <laughs> I misunderstood that. Yeah. Obviously, each of those chapters or sermons originated in some form of sermon yes. as a pastor. Of yes. course, of course. Okay, so when you talked about this idea of cursing and blessing, what yeah. was the typical response? Had they ever thought about it that way? The typical response to giving that talk, honestly, um, is people weeping. So I gave the talk again this weekend, and a woman came up to me weeping, just saying. This is like you gave me language and concepts for the forces that have been destroying my life, and now I feel like I can get free from them. Thank you. So, for whatever reason, that that you know, I, I hesitate to use this word, but that is the talk of all the talks I've probably ever given that gets the most visceral response, and it has is the most anointed, whatever that means. It resonates the most deeply, impacts people because it's not something we talk about a lot. But m- many of us are walking around functionally cursed. The wrong things have been spoken over us and sown into us. And they're like anti-prophecies, where if it's a prophecy about, is an encouraging word about your future, a curse is a, 
a negative, destructive word about your future, and it often becomes self-fulfilling where, because it shapes how we see ourselves. Where do we hear that? Like, what are these things that become these curses that we operate underneath? When you, a lot of it um, often happens uh, in our childhoods, but it's like you're fat, you're a loser, no one's ever going to love you, you're an idiot, you're terrible at that. Sometimes it's more, more subtle. You can be wounded by withholding which means there's things that your parents should give you, but they withhold it based on performance or, you know, they condition you. Uh, they, they offer conditional love rather than unconditional love. So people are walking around with a lot of shrapnel in their souls. And I think they just get used to it and think, I guess this is what Christian life is meant to be. And when they realize that Christ, it, it says this, came to take away the curse. And the promise of the book of Revelation at the end, it says these words, there will be no more curse as part of the promise of the new Jerusalem. So we need to learn to walk in the blessings that God actually has for us. How do we do that? Well, number one, you've got to identify, you've got to have a working knowledge of, of what cursing is and where it's present in your life. And then you have to actually spend time developing a biblical theology of blessing. And you, you have to avoid the extreme sort of like the, um, you know, the hyper faith, the word of faith movement. Um, and, and then you need to learn to access those blessings. The blessings are ours already in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But then we need to learn to appropriate and draw from the account that belongs to us. Mm-hmm. And part of that is by securing our identity. Part of it is proclaiming God's word over you. Part of it is by being in community and learn to love and affirm and encourage one another. This, I mean, there's a ton of stuff connected to that, but most of it is deep level, abiding intimacy with God that lets us access those rich resources and turn them into experience and authority. Now, uh, one of the things that made me uh, respect you more is your willingness in the book to describe times when maybe unintentionally the way you act as a pastor caused a curse on, maybe not a curse, but it, um, it tells a story about a teenage girl who's in your youth group and uh, years later she comes back and she talks about how she felt like you maybe used her to like help your ministry instead of serving her. And as I, I was a church planner before as a pastor, there's definitely times when I was a church planner who w- really needed to get stuff done and had people who wanted to serve. And so I was more than willing to let them burn themselves out and do too much. And the same mistake that you described is one that I definitely could see yeah. myself. So I'm not throwing, throwing shade as the kids would say, I'm not throwing shade at you, Yes, but when we think about like we can speak curses, we can do this to people. Like, uh, first of all, I appreciate you being willing to share that story. But then when she shared that with you, you clearly were distraught by it as you described the story. Like, how, how did you feel when she, you're first hearing that? Wait, wait a minute, I'm trying to be a blessing to people, and this is the opposite of that that she experienced. Yeah, well, when when I wrote the so number one, let's be very very clear in this very uh, challenging cultural environment. That was not a me too or church too accusation. Yeah. So it was like, it was nothing like that. No. I, I feel like it's important to clarify. Yeah. It was Sorry just about more that. about like yeah. the, no, no, it was more about the, um, what was the emotional after effect about being under my leadership? Mm-hmm. And it was basically, I didn't feel like I was built up. I felt like I was used. And you basically used me like a, as a form of capital. You're almost like a battery. And when the battery ran out, you just pulled me out, put someone else in. So when I wrote the book, like my close friends who read it were like, yo, Tyson, man, this is like 
pretty vulnerable. Like you're really going into your motives here. And the root word of vulnerable uh, in the Latin means to wound. And like you've opened up your motives hmm. so that people could like critique your leadership and look at you differently. And, and I was like, well, like honestly, if, if we don't do that and there's no honesty about the things we struggle with, how do we help people? So, how, so all that to say, that is an embarrassing and gut-wrenching story. Mm-hmm. And that, that story marked me. Like the fruit of it is I got on my own and I sat there weeping on a seat on the side of the road just saying, oh, God, I am one of the shepherds from Ezekiel 34 that you prophesy against. You know, like, woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Like you're basically skimming the flock for personal benefit and you haven't gone after the weak or bound up the broken or gone after the lost. And I was like, I've never wanted to be. I've been used in ministry. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe I've become one of those people. I mean, so the best way to describe it, it was a wake-up call for me. It started a process of severe repentance and deep examination. Mm-hmm. And, and to your own defense, this was when you were like a teenager back in Australia, right? I mean, no, that was in America. Oh, well, it's it's yeah, one thing uh, if you if you use an Australian, but if you treat an American poorly, that's that's a big deal yes. in my book now. Uh, yeah, I mean, to make up for it, I had to become a U.S. citizen and pay taxes for the rest of my life in America. Okay, well, that's, I guess we're even now. We're even now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was a youth pastor. So when that event happened, I was probably, gosh, maybe I was in, maybe I was 30 or 31. Okay. Well, uh, regardless, obviously, that's terrible that this yeah. person had that, she had that experience and no one wants that. Yeah. Um, th- there is an unfortunate thing that, I'm going to a doctor's appointment as soon as I'm done with this. And the doctor yeah. has a practice. My dad is a psychologist. He has a practice, which implies that you're, you're like, you're getting better at what you do. And, un- <laughs> sure. and unfortunately in our vocation, um, when you mess up, it, it affects the way that people not only understand church and the Bible and God, but how they understand who they are. And so, um, yeah. anyway, I, I respect your willingness to share that story. I think that's, um, like I said, uh, it's a good gesture. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, well, um, people need to know I was serious. I'm going to give away five copies of this book. And so my sole goal in life is for you to never feel like you need to tweet about your book again because we're going to tweet for you. And the best tweets get a copy. So this is the hand of the Lord sovereignly giving them out through me. That is very kind. I mean, God uses all sorts of means. (laughs) Okay, John. Do you like Tyson or John? Which one do you go by? Uh, most people call me JT. JT. When I think of you, I thought, yeah. is that JT? Is that Timberlake or Tyson? I don't know. It's the same thing. Well, in my world, I mean, I actually live on a street where two two houses down is Justin Timberlake's restaurant, Southern Hospitality. Oh. So I can I can almost smell his barbecue from where I am you right now. You can smell what the JT is cooking. Well, outstanding. That's it. Good. Well, JT, I feel like we've uh, we've covered a lot. You've yeah. done a good job. Do you have any questions for me? Anything you need me to help clear up for you? Uh, all I want to say is, like, let me know when your book's out, and I'll tweet about it a hundred times. So, <laughs> uh, okay, that's that is an absolute deal. JT, have you been to Texas before? Of course, I have. I went to Bible College in Texas. I went to Criswell College in Dallas for a bit. Did you really? Yeah, I lived in Dallas. Worked at a church in Dallas. Which one? Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's <laughs> a real tragedy. It got sued because um, a bunch of students died in a bus accident on a way to camp, and the church closed. You should have stopped me before I started laughing when I thought it was closed. I thought it. <sighs> no, it, it, I, I can't get out of this one. Well, that's terrible. Yeah, so it was a church called Metro Church. Okay. Well, 
I'm gonna heavy. I'm gonna pivot real hard right now and get away from that. <laughs> so, uh, do you know the Enneagram? Um, so I did send out a tweet. I don't know if you saw my Enneagram tweet where I gave an Enneagram guide to my book. Oh, really? I, hold on. And this was this was the tweet that blew up, and I basically said this book is designed for threes, fours, and eights. Sevens won't mind it. Twos, you can avoid it. So I gave a an Enneagram guide. Okay, I'm trying to pull this up. To my book. Um, and then I actually had people stopping me on the street in New York uh, who know me being like, hey, hey, I'm a two. Why can't I read your book? And I was like, it, it was a joke. Well, I'm a s- But it is definitely designed for those for those sort of driven, achievement-oriented people. Okay, I, I'm looking up. I can't find it. Um, I'm a seven, and I enjoyed it. So I think if I was a, a three... I, seven, 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 seven's not bad. So I'm a four with a three wing. Okay, I was... I was assuming that like three was somewhere in your your wheelhouse, but yeah, I mean it, it has to it has to be to, um, you know, write about these sort of things and wrestle deeply with these sorts of things. Well, I so. think that's your four, like you're wrestling with them, but your three is that you look you look good while you do it, and <laughs> yeah, I think my personality description is the aristocrat. Mm-hmm. I think that is like the actual term, yeah. You so. and Jonathan Merritt, you're both fours with three wings, so. There it you is, guys, and he's a, he's a writer too, but he's a better writer than I well, am. But th- I'm primarily a teacher. The thing is, you both can be moody and emotional, but also appear successful while you're doing it. And Yeah, and I know, and just living with that deep sense of awareness of how special we are, so <laughs> that's just wonderful. JT, this has been a blast. Thanks for, uh, thanks for yeah, having this me. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, I haven't done an interview um, with someone who's younger. Most of the folks who I've done it have, uh, you know, just a little bit older. This has been so good talking with well, someone. Well, so first of all, I appreciate thank it. Thanks you, for, thank you for acknowledging that I'm young. I, I do appreciate it. Yes. I am 36, so it's nice to, yes. to hear that stuff. I mean, you're not even halfway through your life, mate. I mean, you're I, doing all the fun the things. The way I live, I'm almost done. Um, I know. I'll rest when I'm dead. I'm kidding. That's not true. That's real dark, man. I feel like yes. I real, real macabre over here, but let's, yes. let's end with something happy. Um, okay. Is that a dog in the background? Yeah. So unfortunately I have two small dogs. Uh, I, I got to teach my kids responsibility mm-hmm. and have resulted in me heaping responsibility. Nice. On what are your dog's back. names? Uh, Molly and Pixie, and they're small. I've got a teacup chihuahua. Mm. And I've got a dog named Molly, an amazing dog, actually, who jumped off the roof of a six-story building, okay. hit a taxi, landed on a taxi on Broadway, okay. got up and walked home, and has lived for 10 more years. That's... So Molly, the wonder dog, is really the Marvel hero. She... So that's the... She sounds like she's Australian. Like, that seems like a very Australian thing to do. Actually, German. It's a little miniature pincher. Oh, okay. So she's a she's a German dog. Very distinctive right. German dog. Bite. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't have any German jokes that are appropriate. Yeah. So, on that note, we're going to end. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.